Hello everyone, welcome back. Good to see you. Hope you're having a good evening or good morning or whatever, whenever you're watching or listening to this. Uh, so we're doing this on Wednesday night tonight. I'll kind of give an explanation of why we're doing it tonight and then kind of how that works out for next week. Uh, I don't nor normally plug this until the end of the podcast or live stream, but given I don't think most people will make it all the way through this, even though it shouldn't be very long, I'm going to go ahead and say on the front end, uh, hey, while you're here, thanks for watching. Please go ahead and hit that uh, subscribe or that follow button right there for all my latest whatever in the world you'd call this. Um, <laughs> what a what a pitch, right? I'm, I should, I should, I'm a really good salesman for my own uh, content here, right? Um, but seriously, I, I, I'm not sure how popular, even how, how coherent this one's going to be. Um, but first, again, the reason why we're doing this this Wednesday, I I couldn't even decide if I was going to do my live stream this past Sunday. I had hit kind of a block in some of the research I was doing, which I'll get to that later. Um, but I was like, well, I, st I think I still have enough that I could present a decent amount of content. And then my sick eight-month-old basically sealed the deal on that one. So it worked out because... I'm okay doing this tonight, and then, because I'd already wanted to do next week's uh, live stream on Wednesday, since that'll be right after Super Tuesday, which is kind of when we'll get an idea of the trajectory of the Democratic primaries generally. So it works out nice. So I can say that it was all according to plan, uh, even though really a lot of it hinged on some stuff I'll kind of illuminate later, and then the fact that my eight-month-old was sick and... So I didn't get much rest, and my wife didn't get much rest. So, regardless, that's where we're at. Um, so to the to the title and to why I, you know I don't know how much sense this is going to make, but I want you guys to kind of know the ideas I'm kicking around. What are some of the thoughts I'm having? And I really try to back everything that I conclude or think or communicate to you guys with, with research, with facts, and so that there's some kind of basis. For what I'm saying, you know, and, and if it is just kind of my opinion or just my thoughts, I want to I want to tell you that that's what's the foundation of of those those thoughts and those ideas. You know, in other words, I want to make a distinction. Um, and so the title of this, you know, I think Bernie might be right. It's it's not clickbait. It's not meant to be um, some type of provocative thing. I I do think that there is a, an incredibly important. A statement or conclusion or idea that he has put forth that I think he actually is probably right about, but I want your guys' thoughts on that, and, and I'll get to kind of what that is um, at the end of this. But first, I want to let you know kind of what brought me to this point, what are the ideas I've been kicking around, what are the things I've been thinking about that have kind of led me to this, um, what I'm kind of marinating in right now, because it, there is a progression here of my thoughts and of the ideas and things that have been kind of maybe motivating me. So as I've mentioned before, if you haven't seen it, you should watch my Why I'm Not a Democrat video, but I was a big Bernie Sanders supporter in the 2016, or 2015-2016 primaries. Um, this feeling the burn, I thought that he was a, a good candidate. I voted for him in the primaries in the state I lived in, and... After the, you know, Hillary gets the nomination, I voted for her in the general against Donald Trump, uh, as I've mentioned before. And whenever Trump won, I mean, that was a that was a huge, like, WTF moment for me, and for a lot of people, right? It caused a lot of people to, to kind of question, I think, what, what you know, wh which way's north right now, you know? Um, especially since it was such a surprise for so many people that Trump won. You know, I think that people kind of branched off in different directions for that. And one of those branches, one of those directions was, okay, I, I thought I understood the world around me. I thought I understood what was going on. Clearly I don't. And so I want to, I want to understand or at least understand it better than I did. And that was kind of the category I fell into. Um, you know, I realized that not only did I not understand the world around me like I thought I did or as well, as I thought I did, but the the people who I trusted as gatekeepers of information to explain the world around me, uh, they didn't know either. They didn't understand either. You know, I've mentioned before, NPR is my preset number one in my car, still is. 
some decent music on there. I kind of flip it whenever I hear uh, them sharing the news anymore because it just pisses me off a lot of times. But uh, NPR and CNN were my main sources of, of information intake, and I realized I don't know what's going on, and they don't know what's going on. And so that was kind of my first task in front of me was, you know, after the 2016 election to go, okay, I need to understand more. Clearly, I've been living kind of in an echo chamber or at least walled off from different ideas and perspectives. And so that's what I did. I, I immediately started steeping myself in contemporary issues and trying to get different perspectives on that. A lot of times from conservatives, but even just from libertarian people and you know, there are a lot of people like myself that were going, okay, what's happening here? What's going on? Do I really understand the world like I thought I did? You know, there's that whole concept of red pilling came up. Um, there's a documentary that was done called The Red Pill that I think it was is really well worded. You know, it comes from The Matrix. You know, whenever Morpheus says, if you take the red pill, you're, you're going to start, you're going to basically wake up to stuff and you're going to see things that you can't unsee. Um, so you need to make sure that that's the, the pill you want to take. And that, that documentary by Cassie J is worth watching. I think it's still on Amazon Prime. But that was her kind of evolution from being a hardcore, diehard um, feminist and leftist to, and to saying, actually, I don't, I, don't, um, I don't identify as these things anymore. People like Dave Rubin waking up to a lot of that stuff, who he's now, you know, center-right um, kind of guy, whereas he was on the Young Turks. Um, Sam Harris, Bill Maher to some extent in some categories. Um, so the point is there's a lot of people asking those questions and a lot of people kind of going through that same journey that I was. And so I found myself wanting to understand the contemporary more. And um, one of the people that I got into watching and listening to uh, was Jordan Peterson because he was experiencing some of that backlash in Canada. And... You know, I, I, I really like Jordan Peterson. I went and saw him uh, speak during his book tour. Um, super cool, super interesting guy. I recommend 12 Rules for Life. It's a good book. Um, and one of the things that he talked a lot about, so that was kind of stage one, was I don't understand the world around me. I need to understand more. So I started intaking contemporary type of things. I need, I need a better, more robust view of the contemporary. And then Jordan Peterson, I, I heard him and others quoting, you know, people from history a lot, you know. And so I'm like, okay, I need to go back to history. So I started getting into that. I started reading, you know, okay, really things that are kind of the basics in a lot of ways. But, you know, John Stuart Mill, um, Thomas Sowell, you know, I was is kind of some degree is more kind of modern history. Uh, Nietzsche even, uh, Hayek. I've mentioned before Solzhenitsyn, Gulag Archipelago, um, George Orwell. And so I started learning a lot about history and the history of philosophy and, you know, kind of some of the, the evolutions of different dominating thought processes and ideologies in the world and then in the West more specifically. And as I mentioned, I think a couple weeks ago is one of those books that I, that I got into that when I was in kind of the history stage, which I still try to stay in that lane to a degree, I always try to be learning something about history, um, was The Road to Serfdom by Friedrich Hayek. And I've mentioned before that that was probably one of the things that has shaped how I think about things the most, that really was like, okay, whoa, and maybe steered my thought process and the trajectory of my ideas and my concerns and conclusions and all of that. So I highly recommend uh, The Road to Serfdom, but for those of you that aren't familiar with it, just to give kind of a brief uh, synopsis of what it is, is uh, so Hayek wrote this book, The Road to Serfdom, is, and he was someone who would observe the rise of popularity of socialist ideas um, and movements in Great Britain, and he documents kind of that, of how, of how that happened in Germany and in Great Britain and those ideas, and he wrote it during World War II, so I think it was published in maybe 1941, something like that, um, before the war was even over. It might have been 43, um, but he was writing it during World War II when, you know, the jury was out on whether or not Germany was going to win. And he was laying out a case for where the why those ideas uh, could gain popularity, where they come from, the implications of them, you know, 
how there's a difference between kind of the intentions behind some of them and then the outcomes in a lot of other ways. And I remember going through that book and that rocked my world because there's a lot of things he wrote about that I was like, holy crap, that is describing things that are happening now, like in a way that you would read some pages of Road to Serfdom, especially at the end when he's talking about, you know, people in Great Britain apologizing for uh, West and their, their their ideals and their philosophies. And and just, I mean, the whole thing is, is, is borderline prophetic. But I was like, this is crazy. And I, if anything, I walked away from that book going, okay, I need to learn more about socialism. I need to learn more about these ideas. Um, but this seems like these are, are really bad, and I want to know like what's what stopped them, what happened. Um, so then after, so that was that uh, you know that history part of just learning about that history generally, and then I kind of honed in on, okay, so those ideas kind of rose to ascendancy at the you know early the turn of the century into the middle you know of, of the century. And I wanted to know, well, what stopped them? These are clearly catastrophic in their outcomes, not necessarily intentions, but in their outcomes. So what stopped the rise and the spread of these ideas? So that was kind of the next stage is I wanted to know what happened. Why? So Hayek describes this thing. Well, what happened? Why didn't that, why, you know, how come Great Britain didn't become, he was a, he was in Great Britain at the time. He was a British guy. Um, Actually, I don't think he was British. He was living in, in London at the time when he wrote the book. But he was observing that, and so, okay, why, why isn't Great Britain socialist? Why isn't the United States socialist? And so I wanted to know, what, what were the barriers that those ideas bumped into? And, you know, so that was kind of the next stage. And I realized a couple things. First off, there were some very real and tangible kind of outward visible barriers that those ideas ran into. One of them was the Nazis losing World War II. We got a, a kind of a peek into the Soviet Union whenever Solzhenitsyn wrote uh, the Gulag Archipelago, which kind of stripped a lot of the credibility of that. Mao, uh, the Ch Chinese um, government being incredibly oppressive. You know, honestly, we focus a lot on the Nazis, understandably so, in terms of 20th century atrocities, but there were significantly more people killed under Stalin and under Mao than ever were killed under Hitler. But the point is, is that there were some mainstream things, big deal things that happened that at least may, caused those ideas and that vernacular to lose credibility um, and to kind of become toxified, at least in the public mind for a long time, the Cold War, the Red Scare, etc., um, but what I also learned was that they didn't really go away. They were just driven underground, largely in academia. Um, but that's a whole other that's a whole other topic. But so I was like, okay, so what? So what, I was like, okay, what stopped those ideas before? And so if we're at a place where we can see them rising to ascendancy again, um, which and then I later learned that that happened also in the late '60s, early '70s. Um, but I'm like, well, what stopped? What stopped those ideas from, you know, what basically removed their credibility? And I realized that we don't, we didn't have any um, similar barriers in place now in terms of we don't have a Soviet Union that's about to fall. Uh, we don't have, you know, Mao over there murdering people. Um, now, we do see a rise of that, right? Um, Xi Jinping and... China and his Communist Party, I've talked about this before, they are rapidly uh, backsliding into an incredibly oppressive communist dictatorship, but people don't really care anymore. I mean, it's crazy. We have more information than we've ever had, um, but people don't really care about the, con the literal re-education camps that uh, China has actively going with uh, Uyghurs and other dissidents against Communist Party. I talked about the way they've completely uh, infiltrated their uh, academic institutions, uh, many of them at least. We know that the, they straight up arrested doctors that were trying to put the word out about coronavirus because it made the party look bad. Um, so China's going back there, but no one cares. Like People aren't associating communism, collectivism with those outcomes, right? It's just like, well, I guess it's just, it's weird. Every single time this happens. Um, 
but regardless, so I was like, well, what do we have now that's stopping that? Venezuela would be an example, but again, people aren't making the connection between the ideology that causes these outcomes and the ideology that that same ideology here um, that's being that's gaining popularity and ascendancy. So once I realized that we didn't have the same barriers, or at least that no one cared about those barriers, then I wanted to know, okay, so what causes these ideas, collectivism, socialism, etc., what causes them to, to catch on, what makes them popular, um, what makes them viable in people's minds, and so I started to study it from that aspect. A book that I would recommend that talks about that is Eric Hoffer's Mass Movements and People. Um, it's really, really good. But the other angle that I spent a lot more time in was really from a, a marketing and just ideas standpoint. I wanted to know how do ideas spread generally, what causes them to catch on or what causes them to not, how do we get you know, you know, cultural zeitgeists um, in terms of the ideas that are catching on in the milieu, that, how that kind of changes. And once I got into the, the marketing, advertising aspect of it, I'm like, well, what causes, you know, I know that people purchase things emotionally and then they justify it rationally later. And I thought surely people do that with ideas and it turns out that was correct. Uh, Jonathan Haidt writes a lot about this in The Righteous Mind. Was, I'd highly recommend it. Um, but one of the, in that kind of stage, so history, you know, okay, socialism, you know, kind of ebbs and flows in terms of public consciousness and popularity. There's always been an undercurrent that's actually been growing steadily for the last 60 years, 70 years. Um, but from a that kind of advertising, marketing standpoint, I realized a couple things. First off, the the leftist or, you know, but at least you would say maybe progressive is a better word, policies or ideas or catchphrases, they are, from like a branding standpoint, uh, far and away um, better than any count. A lot of them, they don't even have counterparts um, on the right or, in, or even in the middle, but they're just stickier. They're just trendier, um, you know, and, and I'm not, not even from like a McDonald's, I'm loving it kind of standpoint, but there is something else there. Um, there is that there is a morality aspect that causes them to have that. You know, Eric Hoffer writes in that mass movements book about how people fight for, in terms of movements and revolutions and stuff, they're fighting for ideals. They're fighting for something that doesn't exist, but they want it to exist. Um, and people don't fight as much for reality because reality is, you know, a a sick eight-month-old, and you know you gotta go to work, and you gotta pay your bills and stuff. And so, um, the progressive kind of platform exists pretty much exclusively in that realm of you're fighting for what could be, not what observably is. Um, and people are always gonna fight harder for what could be, especially if they're not currently benefiting, or at least don't perceive themselves to be benefiting from what is. Um, and the ideas are just stickier. So here's an example. So healthcare is a human right. So that's like what six words? Healthcare is a human right. Six words. Yeah. So Bernie Sanders can go out there and say healthcare is a human right. Well, what is the what is the that's that's sticky, right? It's a everyone can think you can visualize it. You can go, okay, healthcare, that's going to the doctor. A human right, oh yeah, I do deserve that. It is a human right, you know? Um, but sure, everyone, everyone can get on board with people having health care. Is there anything even remotely similar on the other side of that? Like, you know, uh, I think there's a, a better argument that's like, no, it's not, because that would mean compelling another person's labor if, you know, if, if they didn't want to take care of you. Um, now, that's not a super, you know, that's not a very popular, sexy thing to say. Healthcare is not a human right. It's a good thing. It should, I mean, people should have access to it, but to say that you are entitled to it in an arena, like if someone didn't want to do that, take care of you, um, even though that would be immoral on their part, it's also immoral to compel another person's labor. But look at all the crap I just spit out. Like it's, that's not even, and you're probably going, well, wait a second. What are you talking about? Like, and that there's this whole other stream of ideas 
and thoughts that are more complicated and nuanced and have to be teased out. And even then, even afterwards, you might still go, yeah, I don't agree. But healthcare is a human right. What's the counterpart? I mean, like, I, it, there, there isn't one. And so there's all these ideas that in that progressive uh, policy platform that are from an, just purely from a marketing standpoint, they're sticky, they're catchy, they're easily understood. At least you think you understand them easily. They're easily communicated at a later point in time. You can draw them to mind if you need to. Um, and there's not really anything on the other side of that. And the other part is that they have a, a moral imperative baked into them. Um, people, as I mentioned when I talked about Hayek a couple weeks ago, you know, there's this idea of if you kind of use the language of equality and justice and morality and doing what's good and human rights and all this other stuff, it's very difficult to argue against that position. Um, and so it's not just that these ideas are sticky from a marketing standpoint. Again, it's not McDonald's, I'm loving it, or, you know, Coca-Cola, whatever happiness or whatever bullcrap that their slogans are, but there's a actual moral component. One of the things, um, and there's a book called Made to Stick by uh, uh, Heath Chip Chip and something. He, I, I can't remember the name. I, I probably should have remembered that. Um, it's, but the book's Made to Stick. And he talks about five things that um, causes people to, um, to, or causes ideas to be sticky. And actually, no, that's not, that's not, that's not it at all. The, that's a different book. Um, I, I read, like I said, I read a bunch of marketing books. There's another one that's about why ideas spread or ideas that catch, why things catch on. That's the book. Um, Noah something. Uh, can you tell I don't have an outline written? Seriously, dear God. Uh, sounds like the democratic debate last night. Um, but regardless, one of the, the first thing that causes an idea to be shared or that causes an idea to you to want to show that you buy into that idea or product is the social currency behind it. It makes you look good. And to, in kind of today's um, society, it's not about looking cool, but it's about looking moral. It's about looking like you're one of the good guys, looking like you're woke, looking like you're an ally or whatever. So... There, these progressive ideas aren't just sticky, but they have the very first thing that even like a, a, a viral campaign wants, which is that they give you that social currency. It makes you look good. Um, and that's kind of the, the place I've been really marinating and, and thinking about for the last several months is, okay, well, how do you, so how do you strip away that kind of moral high ground component from a lot of these policies and, you know, because you have to dis make a distinction, you know, Hayek makes this, this distinction, Hoffer makes the distinction, I think Solzhenitsyn even kind of touches on it, but between, you know, the intentions of people in a lot of these movements and revolutions, and then the actual outcomes, and the people who end up in charge afterwards, who have an entirely different set of intentions and incentive structures than the revolutionaries that bring it to be. And really, that's where I've been for a while, is thinking about that, kind of how do you separate that perceived moral high ground from, okay, healthcare is a human right. Okay, what do you mean by that? What, what does that actually look like in the United States? Not a country of 5 million, a country of 330 million, um, or, you know, so on and so forth. Green New Deal, whatever. What? How do you separate the intentions behind the people who advocate for it from the actual outcomes that would be there? Because it's difficult. Um, and it's difficult to argue against that because you're, you're arguing from the against perceivably in a lot of people's minds, the moral high ground. Um, and it's called the moral high ground for a reason. The high ground is the most easily defensible position. Um, so, so that's kind of where I've been. And then to the title of this, to that, that Bernie, uh, I think Bernie's probably right. Here's the next state, the stage that I'm in right now. Um, as I've been watching the last several debates after Bernie Sanders started doing well in Iowa, people actually, it's weird. People started actually to attack him for being a democratic socialist. And I, I was Skyping with some friends like a week from this past Saturday, like a week and a half ago. And I kind of asked the question, like, why aren't, why are the attacks by Bernie's fellow candidates, you know, their, their surface level. It's like, well, no one will elect a democratic socialist. Well, why? 
Um, what are the attacks? And I think Amy Klobuchar, who's actually been the most consistently critical of Bernie Sanders and of Elizabeth Warren, who she's not actually progressive. She's just an incredibly dishonest human being um, and stole Bernie's policies. But why Amy Klobuchar, whenever she attacks them, why has the attack always been, well, you need to be able to show the receipts? You know, that, that's kind of the extent of the attacks on these these policies. Even last night, it's well you have to show how people show people how you're going to pay for this. Um, you know, you, you're not showing how you're going to pay for it, which is a different kind of attack than what Hayek made against socialism, what Solzhenitsyn made, or Hoffer, or Orwell, or any of them made against those ideas. They didn't say, well, you know, this is all good and fun as long as you can pay for it. Um, they, they said there's, there's actually something here in terms of the outcomes that is an entirely different thing that ends up being, you know, immoral and oppressive in outcome, not in intention necessarily, but in outcome. But the attacks that the candidates up there and the media and, um, the moderators, as soon as they decided that Bernie was actually a threat, um, they haven't been on an ideological level. And so, uh, you know, I was Skyping with my friends and I said, why are they, why are they actually attacking him like that? And how come those aren't succeeding? So here are the two kind of thoughts I have and they're, they, they go together. Um, and this is kind of what I'm marinating in and what I'm thinking about right now. So the first thing is, I don't think they necessarily, or the, the, those, those attacks don't really work first off, I think, because no one knows what socialist means. It doesn't mean, like, if you look at Bernie Sanders, like ent entrance polls, exit polls, so the most recent primary we have is Nevada. I think it was 67% of people like 27 and younger said they were voting for Bernie. That's an incredible demographic to basically have cornered the market on. Well, why? They don't know, what, what has been their frame of reference for socialism? I mean, I'm 33 now, and I was, I've supported Bernie Sanders in my late 20s. I had no idea. I thought socialism was roads. That's the argument. It's like, well, don't you like roads and firefighters? That's socialism. It's like, well, no, it's actually not. Um, then, then everywhere is a socialist country. How about that? Um, that's not true. I mean, we, you know, we had roads in the United States, and you know, five hundred years ago, that doesn't that doesn't mean anything. Um, but no one knows what it means. You know, I, I thought about this uh, scene in Gangs of New York. It's a great movie. If you haven't watched it, I highly recommend it. But it takes place during the Civil War in New York, and Leonardo, Di Leonardo DiCaprio is trying to infiltrate uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's gang, and he, him and his friend Johnny go and run, do this mission. They basically do like a grave robbing um, to bring the loot back to Daniel Day-Lewis, and one of uh, Lewis's henchmen, this guy named McGloin, McGroin, something like that, is very, he's, he's really upset that DiCaprio and this other guy would do this. And he's like, well, don't trust these guys. They're just a couple of fiddling bends. And DiCaprio's like, I don't, you know, I've been called a lot of things. I don't, but I don't think I've ever been called a, a fiddling, what, you know? And the guy's like, yeah, fiddling bends. Yeah, yeah. And DiCaprio's like, well, you know, if I knew what that meant, maybe I would take offense to it. But, you know, I don't know what that means, you know. But Chiseler, if you call me a Chiseler, th then I'd be offended. You know, McGloin's like, well, what if I am, you know? And then, DiCaprio's like, well, then we got business, and they fight, whatever. The point is, socialist falls flat for a lot of people because they're like, well, why is that? Why is that a bad thing? Why is that? It's fiddling bends. It's like, what does that mean? Why is that a bad thing? I don't know. Um, and there's a reason why young people, the younger you are, again, myself included, a mere you know five years ago, was like, yeah, you know, what's the big deal? Because we have no frame of reference. We're not taught much about the Soviet Union. We're not taught about you know the Central American and Latin American dictatorships that rose to power under that. We're not taught about Cuba. We're not taught about any of that stuff. The Soviet Revolution, we're not taught about any of it. Um, and so it doesn't mean anything to us. And it's the, all the framing is, well, you can't pay for it, not know the outcomes are oppressive, immoral, and murderous. Um, and then the same for capitalism. You know, their capitalism has kind of given this kind of weak kind of defense. 
And I think that those who defend capitalism do a really bad job of defending it, to be honest. They don't talk about, uh, or at least they don't sufficiently, especially over the last couple decades, people are now, but haven't said, well, here's what the outcomes have been. You know, of course, it, there are negative excesses to capitalism. There's negative excesses to everything. Um, but the the overall, you know, the math overall has been positive globally. Um, but the framing for capitalism that we have has been by Bernie Sanders and others who are like, well, capitalism just means stealing, you know, or, you know, and there's kind of these weak kind of, uh, defenses given of it. So the point is, is we don't, the first reason why the attacks don't work is because it's, no one knows what they're even talking about. There's, it, the, the, the words have not been sufficiently toxified and the only context that's given for why they're, they're, uh, they're bad. It's like, well, you can't pay for it. In other words, the assumption there is if you could pay for it, then it'd be fine. It'd be good. It'd be dandy. Um, but you can't. So then I guess it's bad. Um, and so that's the first thing. But the second thing that I think is more important that goes to where I think Bernie Sanders actually might be right is, well, how do you draw a logical distinction between, let's say, for example, Medicare for all and Medicare for all who want it. Um, how do you draw a clear distinction between Bernie Sanders policies and like Joe Biden's policies? And we've actually seen a pretty seamless shift to the left on these policies and actually a seamless shift to the left on, you know, general government, federal growth and entitlement spending, you know, for the last 80 years. Um, and it's been pretty steady, pretty consistent. You know, even whenever Bernie Sanders says, everyone called me a radical in 2016, and now all of my policies are mainstream policy platforms that we're all talking about, he's not wrong. And so the question that I've been asking now, and this is the thing that I'm marinating in, is whenever he says, I'm just fulfilling the the promise of the New Deal, I've found a bunch, as I was researching this, found a bunch of articles from socialist publications saying that very thing. You know, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez is saying it's a Green New Deal, right? Whenever they say we're just fulfilling, which is another way of saying we're operating in a logically consistent framework of the New Deal, of, you know, really some of the policies that were big turning points in our country generally, but then also within the, the trajectory of the Democratic Party. Is he wrong? In other words... Is Bernie Sanders and his his policy platform and what you could really say socialism more generally, is it an aberration in the Democratic Party or is it the logical conclusion? You know, Thanos, right? I am inevitable. Is it inevitable? If not, why not? That That's the thing I'm kicking around right now because I don't know the answer. But the more I look into it, and this is kind of one of the things I was realizing as soon as I had the, I started asking that question, because when I was uh, talking to my friends, I said, is he actually the logical conclusion to the Democratic Party since the New Deal? And I, so then I started going back and researching that, and then I realized, well, FDR, whenever he was implementing the New Deal, a lot of his policies, he was saying that he was fulfilling some of the progressive policy promises and ideas that had existed in the previous uh, administrations and decades before him. So I'm like, oh God, it was one of those things where it's kind of like, the more you study it, the more you learn that you need, that you don't know. Like, it's like, well, I, I, you know, I, I'd really like to understand astrophysics in, uh, in a weekend, right? And then you open a book and you're like, wait, what? What is this? Um, and so that's what I realized is that there is a whole, you know, pretty rich and deep history of progressivism and the ideas and the trajectory of those ideas and how it's guided our country in a lot of ways. Um, and so that's where I'm at. That's what I'm learning about. So, you know, about Woodrow Wilson, Theodore Roosevelt, some of those early turn of the century ideas, um, planning, how that infiltrated management. There's another book called The Management Myth that's really good that talks about central planning and a lot of the same ideas that were existing within um, the minds and the, the intellectual frameworks that were put forth by people that advised, you know, like whether it's Woodrow Wilson, Theodore Roosevelt, um, there was actual socialists running in the 
I think it was I think it was the election where Wilson ended up winning. Um, so these ideas have been around a while, and so the, again, the question to put a fine point on it is: so if you were to say, you know, here's the the linear trajectory of the Democratic Party, right, from an ideological standpoint. Is Bernie Sanders and his democratic socialism, which is just socialism, man. I mean, it's that, it's, yeah, it's, it's democratic like the, the, you know, democratic people's Republic of North Korea is democratic, but are his, are his policies, good, bad, or neutral, are his policies something that infiltrated the democratic party ideologically and need to be like ousted, Right. In order for them to ret- return to, you know, whatever the the purest form of their ideals are. Or is it the destination? Is it the logical conclusion? And from where I'm at so far in my research, I think that it, I'm more and more going, yeah, I think it's actually the, the logical conclusion. I don't know how to, how, to how, how it isn't, how it wouldn't be. Um, because you have these policies that, so, so what I really mean is we're talking about moral imperatives used to justify large expansions of government for some, you know, morally vague, uh, but sound, sounds good kind of outcome, utopian kind of vision. Um, that's what I mean is I don't know how to draw clear lines in his policies from the the trajectory. In other words, and this is where I go back to where, like, if Klobuchar says, we well, need to show your receipts, um, it seems more like, you know, they're on step six, he's on page 106, but they're going in the same, or step 106, but they're going in the same direction. They just want to count by twos, and he's counting by hundreds. Um, but the trajectory is the same. So I don't know. I don't know. Um, but here's a, one of the things that I, I read last fall, um, and I'm going back through because I'm like, okay, I want to kind of, again, st- I want to look at these ideas from a different trajectory or from a different angle, which is what I just explained. Um, but this is what I mean by like, I, I think this kind of explains a little bit of what I mean by the, the policies, the trajectory, the, what you would say is the ideological framework between like what justifies or under what justifies the policies of again what you would say is the trajectory or the the direction the Democratic Party. Um, so this is a book called the the High Cost of Good Intentions. It's about the history of uh, entitlement programs in our country. It's really really good. I highly recommend it. But this is what he says in the beginning. The book's central theme is that the creation of entitlements brings forth relentless forces that cause them to inexorably expand. These liberalizing forces are inevitable and inseparable from the entitlements themselves. They originate from a well-meaning human impulse to treat all similarly situated people equally under the law, which is a good thing, right? When, the, when first enacted, entitlement laws, for policy or fiscal reasons, confine benefits to a group of individuals who are deemed to be particularly worthy of assistance. So in other words, it draws a circle. So you say, here's the people who qualify, and then everyone, those who are in the circle qualify, those who are out of the circle don't. As time passes, groups of excluded individuals come forth, claiming they are no less deserving of aid. So when you draw that circle... Inevitably, there are people who are just barely on the outside of the circle who just, for whatever reason, barely don't qualify. As time passes, oh, sorry, pressure is brought by or on behalf of excluded groups to relax eligibility rules. The ever present pressure is magnified during periods of budget surpluses and by public officials imperative to be elected and re elected. Eventually, the government acquiesces and additional claimants deemed worthy are allowed to join the benefit rolls. So the circle expands. Those people who were on the fringes are now included and the circle expands. That very broadening of eligibility rules inevitably brings another group of claimants closer to the eligibility boundary line. 
and the pressure to relax qualifying rules begins again. The process of liberalization repeats until benefits are extended to a point where the program's purposes bear only a faint resemblance to its original noble intentions. So what he's saying there, the author is a guy named, uh, last name Stanford, I can't remember his first name. But the point is, is that as when you draw those circles and you finally, for whatever pressures, and again, if you're the type of person, so this is where it gets the underlying ideology, where if it's like, well, the government should do X to help X group because that's its job, and you draw the circle and here's the group, then there's those people on the outside who say, well, what about us? We barely don't qualify, right? We're no less worthy. And then, and, you know, because there's it's expedient or it seems sustainable or a lot of times it's just like well it's popular to get you reelected right um then the the circle grows but whenever you grow the circle you just create another group on the outside who no hey we're no less worthy right and then it grows and grows and grows until it it doesn't even resemble what its original noble intentions are one of the examples he gives in the book because he talks about how these programs were initially created for like so um soldiers so the soldiers in the Revolutionary War, the French and Indian War, not the French and Indian War, um, the War of 1812, and the Civil War. In fact, there is, at least as of when he wrote that book, which I don't think it's very old, it's a couple years old, there's uh, a person today receiving Civil War soldier benefits because of the way these things work. But the point is, is how it starts there, but th those are a group of people that eventually die off, you know, soldiers in war. They, they do eventually... That circle eventually closes, but whenever you create programs that the population inside of it is continually generating, then those who there's no uh, logical end to it. And I'm and again, just to clarify, I'm not even talking about right now. If I think that that's the right philosophy or the right ideology, it, that's that's not relevant to the point of what I'm talking about, which is. Is there a logical conclusion to that ideology? Is there a logical conclusion to creating those circles and continually expanding it out? Because um, that's where, again, go back to where Bernie's talking about um, minimum wage or, you know, again, Medicare for all and all this other stuff. What's the logical conclusion? Why $15 an hour? Why not 30 Why not 35 Why not $95 an hour? You know what I mean? If once the government starts dictating certain things, I don't know what the logical conclusion is to those things. And so I, I don't know. I know one thing I, want, I will say, because I know this is always the part of my podcast, if I don't have an ending in mind that I just kind of ramble on and on. Um, one thing I will say is, again, it's incredibly important to separate out the intentions from the outcomes and to understand that even ideals as noble as equality, even though that's not what they use anymore, they use equity, and that, there's a reason for that, um, but or justice or whatever, there are, you reach a, a point of diminishing returns on everything, no matter how well-intentioned or no matter how nobly articulated. So you could say something like safety is a, an ideal that everyone can get behind. Um, we could you know, let's say, okay, we, we, there's something like 30, 35,000 deaths from car wrecks each year. In the United States, it's a lot of people who die. Let's say in the name of safety, we want to prevent all those people from dying. Um, most people would say, that's great. How do we do it? But if it was lowering the speed limit to 10 miles an hour or outlawing cars entirely or something like that, you might very well get rid of all of those fatalities, but you hit that cost of where there's a li there's liberty individual rights and freedom that quickly become infringed upon in the name of that. So it's finding that tension. Speed limits do inhibit individual rights and freedom. Um, but they don't, they aren't so prohibitive that people can't drive, right? Like I can go 80 miles an hour on the highway that runs through here. That's, I don't feel very prohibited by that. But if they were to make the national speed limit 10 miles an hour, all in the name of safety, people would go, well, wait a second. <laughs> that's really prohibitive. Um, so the, the point is, is that no matter how well-intentioned something is, it does reach diminishing returns. Everything does. Individual rights and freedom reaches diminishing returns. Eventually, if that becomes the main and only value, that's called anarchy, right? That's anarchy. So everything has that. But the question that I'm asking is, is the logical conclusion of Bernie's policy and ideology, which for him... 
it seems like the main the the thing that everything points towards is some you know kind of vague concept of equality and that's it um forced equality of outcome and and there is nothing i don't i don't hear freedom anywhere in that framework or liberty or rights or anything about the individual anything anywhere in there um and so and that, that again that's fine that might very well be i mean there are some people who are on the other end of that like i said that's anarchy there are anarchists today who have that same view or except for on the far other end um they don't they don't care about equality at all as long as they can just do whatever they want um but the question is 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 his policies so so here it is i'll, I'll end it here are they especially with the moral impetus behind all of these things. I mean, that's the main argument for a lot of these democratic policies right now. Um, AOC is incredibly adept at articulating her positions from a, a moral standpoint. They're, they're not from an efficacy standpoint. is almost exclusively from a morality standpoint. I have got dozens of clips and sources for this whole other thing I've been working on um, of that. But if if there's a, if it's a moral standpoint, kind of back to that safety axiom, well, we're doing it all for safety, What's the logical conclusion if if you're driven by not some if in other words if the framework that isn't measurable in a way that you know people can agree on um, and if it's just a general sense of equality or just a general sense of justice or whatever um, and it's all driven by this you know kind of moral type thing what what where do you stop what's the What's the natural barrier there? You know, in other words, if you're walking in the direction of honesty, if you say honesty is an all-encompassing principle, um, you're always going to be walking in the direction of honesty. Um, and so I, I don't know but that what the logical conclusion is of Bernie's policies based on what seems to be um, some, you know, one or two-dimensional frameworks that are used to um, as a motivating factor for those policies. And again, no matter how well-intentioned. I actually don't question Bernie's intentions. There's a lot of people that, that do. I think he's a pretty sincere guy. I just think he has one of the worst cases of cognitive dissonance um, in human existence. But is he actually inevitable? Is he the logical conclusion of the Democratic Party? And that's an incredibly important question to ask. Um, because if he is, then that means that Democrats have to do some soul-searching. I mean, we're seeing that right now. Um, on the, there was a debate last night. I didn't realize it till yesterday. I'm like, God, there's a freaking debate again. Like, well, okay, fine. You know, and I watched it, but you could see that, that issue there of where they're like, we don't want Bernie there, but we can't make a good argument for why we don't want Bernie there. And uh, we can't argue against the ideas at, on, on a, their foundational level because we also agree in those ideas. He just is a few steps ahead of us. Um, so that's where I think it is. And if that's the case, then there are moderate Democrats. And I think moderate Republicans that aren't all in on Republic on uh, Trumpism, um, which is a, which is just a form of populism. There's no conservatism to Donald Trump, um, at least in a traditional sense, but th they need to, it has huge implications. If the logical conclusion of the democratic party is actual socialism, then that means that because that has implications for the for conservatives, because if the right doesn't, you know, if their platform doesn't become something that's welcoming to those Democrats who go, whoa, 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 wait a second. Actually, I don't think I am that. Um, then there, there very well might be a third party uh, that forms. Um, I don't know. But the the right has to figure out how they're going to respond to that as well. And people in the middle, we have to figure out, you know, where where do we fit in? What do we what do we want to do? How do we want to respond to this? Um, what does it look like to respond to that potential implication? Because the sooner we all figure that out, the better. Um, but there does need to be a split in the Democratic Party, I think, at least if most people who are in it um, start to realize that this might be the logical conclusion of this party. So I don't know. Um, those are the questions I'm kicking around. I'm studying, uh, like I said, progressivism, the roots of that. And so maybe I'll have more answers for you next Wednesday. I don't know. Um, and we're going to have an idea of where the Democratic Party is going to go after, you know, Saturday and then Tuesday. So if Joe, I think Joe Biden's going to win South Carolina. I said that a couple weeks ago. 
And if he does that, then that means he actually can probably pick up some wins in um, on Super Tuesday. And that means we're probably heading to a brokered convention for the Democrats, um, which would actually be really, really good in terms of them actually having to do that soul-searching on a national scale. Um, and I don't think there's anyone that's going to walk away not pissed off, but that's okay as long as people realize what they what they stand for, you know. And so, I, you know, I, that's all I really care about is people knowing what they stand for and being willing to have the courage of those convictions. So, so that's where that is. I, I don't know. I think that the things that need to happen right now is we have to separate the intentions from the outcomes on policies, whether it's on the left or on the right. Um, and p- we need to start defining our terms that these attacks of socialism are going to keep falling flat if people think socialism is Denmark, which is funny because people in Denmark are like, we're not socialist. And evidently the Nordic countries that Bernie touts, he's actually never visited. He hasn't visited Norway or uh, Denmark or Sweden. Uh, maybe he's been to Sweden, but I know that uh, Denmark and Norway he, he hasn't been to. Um so that that's just an anecdote. Uh, I'm not again. I'm not trying to pick on Bernie because I think he actually does believe this stuff, and and I think he is right, probably, probably that his policies are are the natural conclusion to the trajectory of the Democratic Party, probably since the turn of the century. Um, but this is where I want your guys' input. Uh, if you have any sources or anything that you can send my way that might you know kind of help me on this journey of figuring that out. Uh, please do. If you feel like I missed something or like I'm mischaracterizing or, you know, in any way um, be, I'm off base, please let me know. So, you know, send me those comments. Um, if this is the kind of thing you're into, if these are the types of ideas that you like to think about, that you like marinating in, because um, that's really what I'm about is just ideas and the implications of those ideas. Um, please like, share, and subscribe. Again, that's uh, Return to Reason on YouTube and Spotify, Stitcher. I, it was funny, in my last podcast, I, I mentioned, I'm like, hey, hon, please, whenever you're watching this, uh, write down the, the podcast. So here's where it should be. Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, Pocket Casts. I don't know what that is. That sounds like a, a toy, um, like Pocket Monsters or something. Google Play, tune in. Don't know what that is, but I want you to do it as a verb. Tune in to my stream. Uh, Blueberry. Blueberry? Don't know that. Overcast. So, all right. Thanks for the list, babe. I don't know what half those things are, but uh, if those are the things where you get your podcasts, great. Follow me on there. Um, Share it with your friends. I appreciate that. And, uh, yeah. Thanks for watching. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be here Wednesday. Um, I don't know when I'll start next Wednesday, because it might be long. It might not. I don't know. But, we're going to figure out the trajectory of the Democratic Party if and if that trajectory is a split uh, here within the next couple of days. So it's kind of a big deal. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested in how that plays out. You know, the, the political stuff, like I said, I, is, I'm kind of burnt out on. But the ideas and the implications and the philosophy behind it and the founding ideology here for all of this stuff is really fascinating to me. And it has major implications for where we're heading as a country. Uh, so that that part is interesting. So, anyway, that's it. Thanks for watching, and I will uh, I'll see you guys Wednesday. All right, stay frosty.